The sermon text this morning is taken from Numbers chapter 23, beginning at verse 18. These are the words of God. And he took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, what hath God wrought? Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift up himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. Our God and Father, we thank you for this word and we ask for you to drive it into our hearts now by the power of your spirit. Cause us to see you, to know you for who you truly are so that we might have the comfort and peace of your spirit. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're continuing this morning our Advent series here at Christ Church downtown, we are working our way through the four prophecies of Balaam. Uh, remember, uh, Balaam is this, uh, this scoundrel prophet uh, who has been hired by King Balak um, of, of the Moabites in order to, uh, in order to curse Israel. It appears, given the context, that he's planning, a, he wants to attack them militarily, sees that God has been with them, the mojo is with them, and so Balak thinks, apparently, that perhaps he can get uh, this uh, scoundrel prophet Balaam to, to curse instead, comes out four blessings on the people of Israel. This second blessing, pronounced by Balaam, doubles down on the first one. The first one was, was a good one. It was a good blessing. It was bad enough as far as Balak was concerned. And this just goes in for more. This just goes deeper. This insists that God is determined to bless Israel because he always keeps his promises. God says, I don't go back on my promises. I promise to bless, so I'm blessing. That's it, period. On top of that, God insists that he sees no evil or trouble in his people. And this, if we're thinking about it, ought to be a little bit troubling. Wait a second. It's Israel, God. You're talking about Israel, the people of the book of Numbers, this book. They haven't been exactly perfect or sinless. God says he sees no evil or trouble in them. This doesn't seem right to us. And that's why we need to be reminded in this text of how God's grace works. How is it the perfect, righteous, all-knowing God can pronounce this blessing? I mean, it's one thing to sort of generically pronounce a blessing, blessings. But it's another thing to double down and say, 
I don't see any evil in them. I, I, I don't see any perverseness in them. I see no trouble in Israel. That's startling, and we need to unpack that. So let's look at the text together, beginning at verse 18. This is Balaam. Again, he takes up what it's, my translation says parable. Uh, your translation might say discourse, but it's the word actually that's frequently translated for a, a proverb, a, a, a proverb, a, a wise saying. So he takes up that, this parable, Balaam does, and says and addresses the king, Balak, rise up, Balak, and hear, listen. Now, it's striking that he's addressing the king directly, but it's also striking what he addresses him with. God addresses Balak with a Shema. If you know um, the, Israelite, uh, the Israelite prayer, the, the central prayer of, of the Jews was the Shema, the hero Israel. The Lord our God is one God. In fact, let me read it to you, the rest of it, in Deuteronomy 6. This is... This comes right after Deuteronomy 5, the giving of the second giving of the law. And, and this is um, the, the sort of central creed of Israel, the, the central uh, uh, statement of faith, their confession of faith, their profession of faith is this, what's called the Shema, which just means it's the command. Listen, hear. So there in verse uh, uh, 4 of chapter 6 in Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. This is the, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and, but it, it opens with this, this invitation to Israel to listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And, and I, I think it's... Um, it's striking that he's addressing this pagan king, this Moabite king, with that. And this is really nothing short of a proclamation of Israel's gospel to the Moabite king. But the Shema really is a, a sort of is a gospel proclamation. It's good news uh, to the Israelites. Think about this. Uh, I, I don't think we... I don't think we understand exactly. We, we, are, uh, we have a, a rich inheritance in, um, in, Christen, in Christianity now. And so the idea that there's one God almost seems kind of humdrum, sort of, yeah, like, tell me something new. Of course, there's just one God. But this is a message that's being given to Israel in the context of rampant polytheism. Right? The ancient world knew nothing of monotheism. The ancient world knew nothing of there being only one God. No, there was a God for everything in the ancient world. Polytheism, many gods, uh, means that there was, you know, there was a God for the, the grain harvest. There was a, grain for, there was a God for making sure your, you know, your cattle uh, bore uh, uh, healthy calves. There was a God for the rain. There was a God for the sun. There was a God for the river. There was a God for the stars. There was a, I mean, there was a God for it all. And, and much of your life in, in ancient paganism was spent trying to figure out which God was mad at you and which God you needed to appease. And so you're running around trying to make the gods happy, and the gods are never happy. And if, and if you know much about ancient mythology, you know that almost all the time the gods are at war among themselves. And then the people on earth are sort of, they, they get, they, they're stuck in the, in the grinding uh, gears of that polytheistic uh, warfare, 
the, the gods and goddesses are at war. They're tricking one another, deceiving one another. And, and people just get caught in those gears constantly. And you're trying to figure out how to, how to make one of them happy, how to get them out of your life, how to have, have them stop cursing you, and so on. You cannot underestimate the good news, the gospel. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God is one God. There's only one God. There's only one God. You don't need to be scrambling around trying to find which God to appease, which God to serve, which God is angry at you. There's only one God. And then what goes with that then is the idea that this, this God doesn't, isn't, doesn't have multi-personalities. It doesn't change. Because this God is one, he has one mind, one heart, one will. And so he doesn't change his mind. He's not capricious like the gods of the nations. He doesn't try one plan and then go back and have a, you know, have a bad day and decide to go a different direction. God's nature, the kind of God he is, the fact that he is one means that he doesn't change. He's not like us. And so that's, of course, what the message continues on. So initially, there's this listen, Balak, listen, Shema. And, and this, is, this is an echo, at least, of that Shema of Israel. Our God is one God. And then God immediately assures Balak that he doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind like men. What he has promised to do, he will surely accomplish. See that in verse 19 of Numbers 23. Balaam repeats that he has received, uh, he has received another instruction to bless. So he, he has gone up onto a mountain. There's been another sacrifice, another attempt at cursing. Balak come back down and said, you don't get it. This God is one God. He doesn't change his mind. He's, he's determined to bless and I can tell you, that's the word I got again. He is determined to bless. He will not reverse it. But it isn't merely a refusal to curse. It isn't merely a refusal to curse, although it's that. He's promised to bless, and so he's going to keep his word. God doubles down on that and again says he does not see any iniquity in Jacob. In other words, he sees no reason to curse Jacob. He sees no reason to curse him. Now, I mentioned last week that in just a couple of chapters, in, uh, in Numbers 25, we know that Balaam, this prophet for hire, is he's gonna fail at pronouncing curses, but Balaam is actually involved in a conspiracy to seduce uh, the Israelite men uh, through Moabite women. And so in Numbers 25, in a couple of chapters, we find out that that in fact happens, and Balaam's actually involved in that plot to seduce the Israelite men. And they fall into massive sexual immorality. Many of them die by a plague. And then finally that's stopped uh, by the righteousness of Phineas, who executes one particularly high-handed incidence of that uh, immorality, that rebellion. So, um, and, and so it may be that in, in a sense that Balaam here pronounces that God doesn't even see a reason in them to curse them. It may be that Balaam thinks, or Balak thinks, um, maybe we can give God a reason to curse him. Yeah, okay, you're, you're all, you know, uh, you, you think you're, they're doing great, God, but here, watch this. 
um, send the, uh, the temptation of the Moabite women in and then the, they fall into sin, then surely God will curse them. Perhaps that was the thinking of that particular plot. At any rate, though, he says, He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen any perverseness in Israel. And he says, The Lord himself is in their midst. The Lord himself is in the midst of Israel, and therefore God only hears the voice of a great king. That's verse 21. The shout of a king is among them. Verse 21. God brought them out, he says, of Egypt with the strength of a unicorn, so there is no incantation or divination that can come against them. He, he brought them out with such strength, with such power, there's no incantation that can come against them. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no divination that can come against them. There's no curse that can come against them and undo this. He brought them out with his mighty arm. And he did it in such a way that the whole world is impressed with what God has done. Again, verse 23. There's no enchantment that can come against them. And it's been such an impressive thing that everyone says of Jacob and Israel, what has God done? What hath God wrought? What has he done? It's amazing. The blessing finishes, the blessing closes, though going even further. It's not merely that God says uh, they're going to be, uh, I'm not going to curse them, uh, I'm not going to bring hardship upon them, but rather there's a positive blessing. The blessing that comes upon them includes conquest. The people shall rise up as a great lion, lift himself up as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. This blessing includes fulfilling the promise to Abraham to give them the land of promise. They are going to be a conquering nation. Uh, King of Moab, Balak, you don't have a chance. Israel's coming. God's with them. The shout of a king is in their midst. They are going to conquer. They're going to be given the land. It's not just a generic blessing. It's that blessing in particular. Now, when God says that he isn't a man who changes his mind or breaks his promise, he's pointing back to the covenants he's made and kept. It's, it's not just this scenario. It's not just this situation with Balaam and Balak uh, here in Numbers. But he's also referring back to the kind of God he is and the way he has always been. He has always been a God who has kept promises. He has made promises and he has kept them. He's pointing back to the covenant he made in the garden. The one God made one covenant with Adam in the garden after the fall. So remember in Genesis, there's an original covenant of creation in which God had promised eternal life to Adam on, on, uh, in response to and as a, as a reward for his perfect obedience in not taking the fruit of the forbidden tree. Adam disobeys. He listens to the voice of his wife. He sins. He rebels. God shows up. He comes to deliver the curses of that covenant. And in the very, uh, in the very moment that he's pronouncing the curses of that covenant, God introduces a new promise. He introduces a new covenant. In, in the midst of Genesis 3, as he's delivering the curses of the creation covenant, he promises that the seed of the woman, the descendant, a descendant of Eve, will come one day and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. 
There will be enmity between the descendants of the woman, the descendants of Eve, and the descendants of the serpent. There will be animosity. There will be constant warfare. And in the end, the seed of the woman, a descendant of Eve, will crush the head of the descendant of the serpent, of the serpent's head. That promise is given in Genesis 3, and it's what we call the covenant of grace. In the midst of this broken covenant of creation, God is not, in a sense, sort of not even phased. Again, just right there, he is determined to do the thing that he began to do. He, he, He began by, he created man in his image, and he intended to crown him with glory. He intended for the glory that he began in the garden to spread to fill the earth. And so even in the midst of Adam breaking covenant, God makes a new covenant, the covenant of grace, and promises that what has been broken here will be healed. What has been broken here will be fixed and promises to do that through the seed of the woman. Now, that's the story of the whole Bible. That's the story of the whole Bible. There's one God, and he has one plan. You have have one God. There is only one God, and he has only one plan. And that plan is encapsulated in this one covenant of grace. So when Noah comes, you you read down a few chapters in Genesis, you've got the world growing wicked and evil. Every imagination of their heart is evil, and maybe you've thought to yourself, God, why not just kill them all? Why not just start over? I mean, wouldn't that be easier? But but God has made a promise. He promised that a descendant of Eve would be the one to crush the seed of the serpent. And so he cannot destroy the whole world. He must save some. And so he, he does save Noah and his family. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. He believes. And so God saves Noah's family and promises to never flood the world again in Genesis 9. And he puts a rainbow in the sky and says, this is my covenant with you and with all of creation. I won't do this again. My covenant is with you. I will remember my my promises to Adam and to Eve and to you and to those who come after you. And then God renews that covenant again with Abraham, promises that in his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. See this in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. He calls Abraham and says, I will be your God. I will be the God of your children after you. And in your seed, again, notice that language, in your descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in fact, he says, and so that you will know that I will do that, I'm going to give you a, a, a promise of particular piece of land. I'm going to give you this land in the land of Canaan, the land that you're walking around in right now. I'm going to give it to your descendants so that you will know that my plan is to give you the world. This is a down payment of the whole world. In you, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The short term is you get this land as a down payment. The long term is the whole world. In your seed, the whole world will be blessed. Blessed. Of course, there's a whole bunch of drama in that whole promise that I'm going to circle back to in just a few minutes. But again, God is keeping covenant. The one God has one plan. And that one plan is this one covenant of grace that he renews. God keeps that same promise to Abraham. He keeps it to Israel when he comes to bring Israel out of Egypt. In Exodus 3, when Moses meets God at the burning bush, what does God say 
What does God say? Now, remember this. Sometimes we miss this. Exodus, the beginning of Exodus doesn't highlight this, but you know, part of the story with the people in, in Egypt, it's not just that they were innocent victims. It's true that the Pharaoh forgot Joseph. But we're also told in other places that Israel fell into idolatry in Egypt. They were worshiping idols. In fact, Joshua even, Joshua, much, much later, is still telling them, put the idols away that you served in Egypt. Right? Joshua, they're in the land. Would you stop worshiping those gods? So, so Israel is not this innocent victim. They've, they have been oppressed by the Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph, but Israel has turned to idols. They're worshiping idols in Egypt. What does God say to Moses at the burning bush? He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, again, God could have said, you know, I'm done with these people. I, 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 I want to do something different. Instead, what does he do? He identifies with his people. He tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I have heard their cries for mercy, and I am sending you to save them. God is not starting over. He's not doing something different. He's renewing that same covenant promise. He promised that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that Abraham and his descendants would possess the land of promise, and then the world. So God renews covenant with Israel and bringing them out of Egypt and then ratifying that covenant at Sinai in Exodus 19 to 24. That's about the covenant track record that Israel has at the point where Balaam is proclaiming this blessing. Am I a God that changes my mind? No. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. That's, that's where we are in the story, but we have even more. The story doesn't stop there. We have even more. Following this, you've got the story of the, the, the uh, conquering of the promised land. You've got the story of the judges. And the story of the judges, of course, is just sort of mini exodus after mini exodus after mini exodus, where you have the people of Israel falling into idolatry. They become subjects, slaves of some pagan king or tyrant. They cry out for, for mercy, for deliverance. God raises up a deliverer, a judge, a savior, delivers them. They have rest for a period of time. They fall back into idolatry, fall back into slavery. God keeps his covenant. God keeps his promises. This is renewed also even to David in 2 Samuel 7. He promises David that David will have a descendant that will sit on his throne forever. A seed, a descendant of David will sit on the throne forever and will be God's own son. This is, this is the story. And this is the story that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. In fact, this is what Mary and Zechariah sing about in the coming of Jesus in Luke chapter one. We're singing uh, the Magnificat right now during Advent. And, and maybe you notice that, how Mary references Abraham in the song that she sings. So this is Luke chapter one. Remember, Mary goes and visits Elizabeth, her cousin. And in their exchange, uh, she, she bursts out in song. This is Luke one. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced 
in God my Savior. Then in verse uh, 55, uh, sorry, 54, he says, she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Right? Mary says, what God promised Abraham, he's doing now. He's doing now in me. He's doing now in the baby in my womb. And Zechariah is the same thing. Zechariah, remember, his, his, uh, he went dumb, mute, because he didn't believe uh, the promise of the angel that his, his wife would give birth uh, to John. And when Zechariah's his mouth is opened, he, he bursts out in song as well. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's, he's looking back to David. Look. He's doing the thing he promised to David. And then as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. I mean, going back to Adam, he says, this is the thing that God promised to do to the holy prophets since the world began, since Adam, since Noah. And then in verse 72, Luke 1, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore, to our father Abraham, that he would grant to us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Mary and Zechariah burst into song saying, look, it's, that, it's the one plan. The one God has one plan. The one God has one covenant. He's remembered his covenant and, and here it comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus, the Messiah. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. The one God has one plan, and that one plan is this one covenant that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God is not a man who lies. God is not a son of man who goes back on his word. This one God keeps his word. Of course, one of the one of the striking things about this whole story, though, is this, this God who doesn't go back on his word, this God who keeps covenant, is the kind of God who loves men who don't. That, that's the story. The story is that this God who does not go back on his word loves men who have. This God who doesn't break covenant loves men who do. His covenant is made with that kind of people. We noted last week that, again, Balaam's first blessing is already incredible since God pronounced a blessing on a nation full of complaints and unbelief. You just, just use, all you, have, all you need is the, is the book of Numbers. Just read the book of Numbers and you get here and you say, what, which Israel is he talking about? It's not this Israel. The book of Numbers is about Israel complaining and disobeying and not believing and not obeying and falling into sin. What are you talking about? I don't see any perversion in Israel. What are you talking about? In the next chapter, they're going to fall into sexual immorality. What is he talking about? You have a wicked king, a wicked prophet, certainly not a good nation. I mentioned last week, actually, in the notes, I, I, I need to correct this. I said that Balaam was an Israelite prophet, uh, but that's not right. In all likelihood, he was actually an Edomite uh, prophet. Uh, he was probably a descendant of Esau, 
And, um, and so think of him as somewhat like Job, except Job is a good version of this. So remember that Esau would have known about the true God. Edomites knew about the true God. Uh, and Job was one who was faithful to that true God. It's likely that uh, Balaam is this scoundrel prophet Edomite. And he's in the midst of this, you know, conjuring up, trying to conjure up these curses on these people. And, and, and he knows, like, look, the hypocrisy. But God goes even further here in this second blessing, insisting that he has not seen any trouble or wickedness in Israel. How is that possible? I've not seen any trouble, no perversion in Israel. How is is that possible? Well, the same verse actually explains it. The same verse actually explains it. It says, he hath not beheld, this is verse 21, He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. How is it possible? God is with him. You guys might remember this, but in the the camp of Israel, literally, it's like a diamond shape. The the tabernacle is in the center of 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 the camp, and then the priests themselves camp right around the tabernacle, and then the Levites are around the priests. And then there are three tribes in the north, three tribes in the east, three tribes in the south, three tribes in the west. And, and they're all camped around the king. And what's at the center of the tent? What's at the center of the camp? I said it, the tent. The Lord's tent, the king's tent. And what's going up from the tent continually? The smoke of the sacrifices. The the scripture reading this morning actually was reading about that. That there's this continual sacrifice. The smoke is going up continually. God is in the midst of them. God is in the midst of them. He is their king enthroned above the cherubim. He's in the midst of them. Now, this doesn't mean that God is not aware of any sin in Israel. What this is talking about is God's covenant love and promises. God's covenant love and promises. As, as far as God, he's dealing with his people and he has to deal with them. They've got things to deal with. But as far as the nations are concerned, as far as the world is concerned, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. They're my people. I'm their king. I'm with them. You've got nothing against them. What is he doing there in the midst? He's, it's not, he's not ignoring their sin. The smoke is arising. Why? to deal with their sin. The sacrifices are being done every morning and every evening. And the, and the Israelites are bringing their sacrifices, their sin offerings, their trespass offerings. There's blood all over that place. And the smoke arises and God says, I'm taking care of it. It's being taken care of. I don't see any iniquity in Jacob. I don't see any perverseness in Israel. That's my people. I'm their king. They're with me. That's God's covenant love and promises to them. In Romans 4, Paul actually is describing this this way of God, the way that God is with people. It's surprising and startling. In Romans 4, he uses specifically the story of Abraham and, and, and points out that God comes to Abraham and promises something to Abraham that's not anywhere close to being seen. What does he promise him? He promises him, you know, a seed, that, will, will, that who, who will be the blessing of the nations. 
All the ends of the earth will be blessed in him. And what's the problem? Abraham has no kids. Abraham has no kids. And, and, and you guys don't forget that this is like a particularly, it's easy to read the story and just think, yeah, I don't Abraham has any kids. Don't forget what Abram's name means. So Abram, Avram, means exalted father. His name means great dad. And he's walking, you know, he's going around, he's going around Palestine, he's going around the land and, you know, meeting the various tribes and what's your name? My name's great dad. Where's your kids? I'm working on that. Yeah. And, and, then, and then, so he's got that, he's carrying that with him. God promises him kids and he's okay, all right. And, and of course, there's the challenge with, you know, maybe it's Hagar, but it's not. Maybe it's, maybe the, maybe it's this other relative, it's not. And then, and then God says, uh, he comes to him and says, I, I'm going to give you a new name. And you might have, you know, think Abram just for that moment is like, whew, that'd be great. Love a new name. Yeah. How about Fred? <laughs> Something very nondescript, right? And God comes to him and says, what? I'm changing your name to Abraham, which is of, again, that's father, Raham, means father of roaring nations. <laughs> Abraham's like, that's not better. You didn't fix it. You made it worse. And God says, no, you don't understand. I've decided that it's going to be even better. You are going to be the father of roaring nations, not just one, all of them. And Paul says that in Romans 4, he says, what God is demonstrating there is the way he is toward us. And what he does over and over again is he calls those things which do not exist as though they do so that they might come into being. He does this in the beginning in creation, let there be light, and he summons the light into existence. He did this with Abraham, calling him fruitful, calling him a father. How many kids did he have? None. This is how God does it. He calls those things which do not exist as though they do so that they will. God does the same thing with us. He promises us the complete remission of our sins, a perfect standing before him, his complete approval and everlasting blessing in Christ before any of it has been accomplished. That's what he promises to us in the gospel. Complete remission of sins, complete cleansing, perfect status, my eternal blessing and inheritance in Jesus forever. And what do you got? You're covered in sin. You're covered in the consequences of your sin. You're covered in filth. This is what God does. And faith in Christ means being fully convinced that what God has promised, he is able to perform. That's what Paul says in Romans 4.21. That's what Abraham did. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is what Abraham did with the promise of regarding his child, his descendants. And this is what God still calls us to believe for ourselves and for our children. This is the faith of Abraham. God says, I will be your God and the God after you, the God of your children after you, the God of your grandchildren. I am the God of this world. In Jesus, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The knowledge of the Lord is gonna cover this sea like the waters. 
This, this earth, like the waters cover the sea. And you look around and you say, but have you seen? And Paul says, faith is believing that God is able to do what he has promised. Faith is believing that God is able to do what he has promised. There is one God and he has one plan and he has one covenant. Do you believe? When that kind of faith receives these promises, an individual is justified. God proclaims this. He says, you belong to me. I intend to bless you and your children and your grandchildren after you. I'm gonna bless you, your community, your church, your nation. I'm gonna bless it all. And faith receives it. And God reckons that righteousness. And he does it. Faith sees Christ for us doing all of it. All right, you can do this because Christ, because Jesus died, because he rose. Okay, Christ sees Christ for, faith sees Christ for us and God simultaneously sees Christ in us. Faith sees Christ for us. That God's covenant and mercy is for us. That, he, that there is one God and he has one plan for us and for the world. And faith says, you can do that because you raised Jesus from the dead. And God simultaneously sees Christ in us. God forgets all our sins in the blood of Jesus and the status of Christ's perfect obedience is reckoned to us. And this faith sees God's intention to bless us and our families and our churches and our nations. That's what faith does. That he who is able to perform it will do it. That's what faith does. Faith says, you raised Jesus from the dead, so you will, you will save my children. You will save my grandchildren to a thousand generations because you are able to do it. In the covenant, God declares his love and, in, and his intention to bless. That's what God's covenant love and mercy is, his intention to bless. In the covenant, he declares us and claims us as holy in the covenant, God claims us as holy saints. This is, this, is what, this is what Paul's doing when he addresses the letters to the various churches. He, he addresses them as saints. I went back and checked, and he even does it for the Corinthians. Right? The Corinthians. These were the people who were, where they were really proud that they had not excommunicated the guy who was sleeping with his stepmom. These are the guys who are taking one another to court. These are the people who are still going to prostitutes and Paul has to tell them we don't do that anymore now that we're Christians. These are the people who are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Right? And Paul calls them saints. Why? Not because they were good, but because God is good. Because God's covenant promises have been extended to them. Because God's covenant and love is for them. This is what is being proclaimed. It, God claims to bless my blessings upon them. And we think that's a terrible idea. Do you know what they're gonna do with that blessing? They're gonna squander it. They're not even gonna appreciate it. But don't you see, this is what God always does. God did not look down at any one of us in this room and think, you know what? She's really making good progress. I think she could handle my blessing. You know, he's really smart. I think he'll get it. No, 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 right? The whole, the whole point of it is that we don't get it. We're rebels. We hate God, we're enemies of God, we wanna do it ourselves, and God in his mercy comes and puts a blessing on us. And it doesn't make sense. We're enemies of God, and God comes and says, I wanna make you my friend. 
We're, we're full of sin. We're full of junk. We're full of garbage. We're full of filth. And God says, I, I'm coming to bless you. I'm going to make you perfect in my sight. I'm going to rejoice over you. He claims us as holy saints. This is what Paul's getting at when, when he, in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, if there's a one believing parent, their kids are holy. I claim them. In fact, if there's an unbelieving spouse, I claim him too. I, they're holy. They're claimed. The one God has one plan, one covenant, and his plan is to bless. He claims, and then what he calls, even though it doesn't exist, he, he proclaims it. He claims it. And then because he has declared it to be, it comes to be. When that love is received, when that promise is believed, we are justified. And all that God sees in us is Christ. All he hears in us is the shout of our king. And one of the most glorious things our king shouts is, it is finished. In Christ, he doesn't see any trouble or any evil in you. This isn't a blind, sentimental love. It's a bloody, truthful love. He's, he's not pretending there's no sin. He's saying, I've dealt with it. I moved in. I'm their king. They belong to me. I've dealt with it. Their sins are nailed to the cross. They died. They're no more. I removed them as far as the east is from the west. I smell the smoke. They're mine. It's gone. It's finished. That's your king. He doesn't see any trouble or evil in you because he's claimed you as his own. He rejoices over you in Jesus. He blesses you with the same blessing he puts over his own son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And, 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 you, and you think, you know, like, that's, that's great. I remember that seeming really great. But, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. Or maybe you grew up in the church. And, and, and you, you, you know, and you just, there's just a lot of gunk in there. And here it is, years and years, and you think, it's just slow. I'm still dealing with that old sin. It's just there. It just gnaws at me. I hate it. It's foul. It's disgusting. I don't want to do it. I repent of it. I try to get rid of it again. And it's still there. But stop looking down. Look up. Look to your king. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his own. He claims you as his own. He says, I live with them. I'm their God. They belong to me. I don't know what you're talking about. Shut up. Close your mouth. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He declares us clean. He declares us innocent. He declares us his own. He declares us his favorite. You belong to him. This is what your baptism proclaims. You belong to him. He claims you. He's your king. This is one of the things I love. I've said this many times because it's one of my favorite things about the story of the Exodus. The word armies is only used like four or five times in the whole story of the Exodus. And it never once refers to anything Pharaoh has. Now your, your translations may say that Pharaoh has armies. They're wrong. In the Hebrew, Pharaoh has might, he has strength, he has chariots and he has horses. That's it. 
The word armies is used four or five times, and every single time it refers to the Israelites. They are his armies. And you say, that ragtag band? And God says, watch me do it. And watch, they're even going to plunder the Egyptians. And it's a ragtag, you know, ragtag, bunch of complaining, you know, disobedient people. And they go marching out. And God's word says they march out as his armies. God says, they're my people. I'm their king. They belong to me. Christianity is a militant religion, but it's frequently misunderstood or misconstrued because we, we misunderstand the fact that its militance is driven by God's fierce grace. What are we so worked up about? What are we so militant about? God's grace, that he hunted us down and forgave us, that he took all our cursing and put it on his son and then he gave us his blessing forever. That's what we're worked up about. That's what makes us so militant. Don't you see? Don't you see his kindness? Don't you see his mercy? Don't you see his grace? That's what we want to fill Moscow. That. That grace, that mercy. Don't you see how good he is? He'll take your cursing. He'll take your evil. And he'll replace it with blessing. His kindness, his mercy to you, to you and to your kids and to your grandkids to a thousand generations. This is why Christ was born. Christ came for us, for our sorry world. Christ died and rose again to make all things new. And so we summon the world, come and see. Come and see what he's done for us. His fatherly covenantal affection. Yearning to put our sins away. Rejoicing to overlook things. That's his fatherly covenantal affection. So fathers, are you reflecting that to your kids? Are, we, are you for your kids like that, the way God is? It doesn't mean not correcting. It doesn't mean not thinking there's, you know, that there's nothing wrong with them. It means they know that you're on their team. They know that you are for them like God is for you. The way that God has pursued you, the way that God has rejoiced over you, the way that God says, these are my people and don't you talk bad about them. God has that kind of pride over us. Do you have that kind of pride over your kids? Moms, can you say this blessing over your kids? Do you rejoice over your family like this? Do you have a critical eye or a covenantal eye? Do you have a critical heart or a covenantal heart? A covenantal eye is not blind to flaws and weaknesses, but it is inclined to overlook them. It's inclined to overlook them. It's inclined, it wants to see them repented of, it wants to see God's blessing on all of it. Love covers a multitude of sins, and yes, sometimes love confronts sins. But God's grace is lavish, it's rich, and we are called to give what we have been given. Our God and Father, thank you for pouring out this grace upon us and your Son. Thank you for being one God with one plan and one covenant coming for us in Jesus. We rejoice in you this morning and we pray that you'd fill us with the kind of grateful hearts that would overflow in the coming days and weeks, especially during this season. We ask for this in Jesus' name who taught us to pray, singing. As we begin to take steps to establish a new church, we have to be clear that planting new churches is something that Jesus does by the working of his spirit. People do not plant new churches. 
People can start political parties and businesses and social clubs, but the church is not an ordinary human endeavor. The church is made up of ordinary humans, but they are ordinary humans who have been made new by the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Spirit. That same Spirit that gives new life to individual people is the one who knits people together into communities called churches. And the stitches he uses are word and sacrament, prayers and praise and fellowship. But this same reality is at work here at this table. This is ordinary bread and wine that God promises to work through. He promises to be present here by his spirit, feeding us with the life of Jesus. In the same way, we actually believe God has been present since the call to worship this morning at the beginning of the service. We gather to do ordinary things like pray and sing and hear the Bible read and explained and then share this bread and wine. But God is the one at work doing extraordinary things through these ordinary things. The primary thing we're instructed to do is believe that. Trust in Christ, that he who began a good work in us will continue that good work. But with eyes of faith, look for the evidences of that good work. Was there something in one of the hymns or Psalms that spoke directly to your situation this morning? Was there something in one of the scripture readings or the sermon? Or was it a conversation before or after the service? That's the Holy Spirit knitting us together. Christ is the gardener. He is planting this church. His spirit is the one pulling the threads of our lives together through the gospel, through this bread and wine, through the water of baptism, through the prayers and psalms and fellowship. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you. You sent your son so that we, being united to him, might receive your great blessing. Fill us with hearts full of gratitude so that we might receive that blessing and share it rightly. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are the people of God, and he rejoices over you. You did not choose him, but he chose you. You belong to him. He's claimed you, and he rejoices over you. This is why he blesses you every Sunday. He puts his blessing on you every week because you are his people. He rejoices over you, and you are commissioned then to go out with that blessing and share it with everyone around you. So receive this blessing now. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forever. And amen.